It's go time. It's November, it's a whiteout outside, and the Grey Cup is coming to Regina. Welcome everyone to Third Down Gamble, Don Charbon along with Heath Graham, and Pat Mooney is with us tonight. The uh, East and West Conference Finals are now in the books, but there's a lot of other things to talk about as we get going towards Grey Cup Sunday. So let's say we move the topic to something that's top of mind with a lot of people, and that is the Hamilton Tiger Cats trading for Bo Levi Mitchell's negotiation rights, essentially. Uh, What's your take on that? Not really a surprising move. We knew Bo Levi Mitchell's days were numbered in Calgary. They are giving up, I believe, a third round and a fifth round draft pick for his negotiation rights, so not a huge amount of assets going back towards Calgary. It does give Hamilton first rights to negotiate an extension contract or a new contract with Bo Levi Mitchell. However, he has come out and stated that he is going to listen to what they have to say, but is still really keying in on testing the free agent market. I think this does show Bo Levi Mitchell that Hamilton is willing to invest in him. So that's a sign of good faith that maybe the other teams weren't willing to step forward and take that. I think that maybe can help him to consider Hamilton. Having said that, it also tells us that Hamilton is ready to move on potentially from Dane Evans because there's no way if they did sign Bo Levi Mitchell that they'd be able to continue paying both quarterbacks the wage that they're now signed for. Evans is due to make 430000 this year and his contract was going to get a bump to four fifty-five in 2023. Just to flesh out what Hamilton is giving up, it's a third rounder in the 2023 CFL draft, a fifth rounder in the 2024 CFL draft, and that dreaded phrase, future considerations. This does definitely give Hamilton the leg up. As you mentioned, Pat, it shows good faith. And the big thing for the Tiger Cats, as we know, the 110th Grey Cup is going to be in Hamilton. So this might be another crack at Hamilton participating in a hometown Grey Cup and try to avenge what happened last year in 2021. Hamilton sees a window of opportunity starting to close. They certainly struggled off the top of the 22 season and then eventually made it to the playoffs with a huge push at the end. The team then... Uh, was defeated in the East semifinal, and that left them with uh, them kind of looking into the air and wondering what went wrong. In a post uh, sort of season presser about this business with uh, the trading for the negotiation rights with Bolivar Mitchell, and by saying that, it, essentially what it is is that he's under contract technically with the Hamilton Tiger Cats right now. They have exclusive negotiation rights with him up until free agency. So it's almost as if he's on the roster, even though he's never played a game and he hasn't formally signed a contract. The The thing that uh, Orlando Steinhauer referred to a lot was that uh, he doesn't want to pick on Dane Evans or Matthew Schiltz, but he did say that there was not enough production and where it worked so well in previous years this year, it didn't seem to get as good with the play of the quarterbacks in Hamilton as when Jeremiah Mazzoli and Dane Evans were together. It's tough when a team makes a decision to move from 
two quarterbacks to go to a younger quarterback, which is what we also see happening in Calgary right now. Uh, the move to Jake Mayer instead of Boldy by Mitchell. And when that doesn't pan out, it impacts the team. We saw that in Hamilton. Dane Evans looked like he was going to be a quarterback of the future. He seemed fairly successful to the point, but he just couldn't seem to get it together, particularly at the start of the year. He's told the press that this was his toughest year mentally, and we could see that as fans of the game. He often struggled, and he wasn't able to do what he thought he could do or should do Turned the ball over too much, didn't protect the ball well, and it impacted Hamilton, particularly in the first part of the season. At the end of the season, I thought he started to get in more of a groove and played a little bit better, good enough to get them to the playoffs. But in the evaluation, the GM's obviously saying that they can do better in that position. Especially when you get somebody of the caliber of Bo Levi Mitchell. Now, Granted, his 2022 isn't a season that you'd look at and say, wow, he was amazing. A 6-3 and three record as a starter, yes, that's really uh, nice. He certainly showed well in the f- playoff game. Look at his pedigree. Look at how many Grey Cups he has taken the Stampeders to. Look at how many they've won. And you'd be remiss at not even thinking about it. Now, did they give up too much to just have the opportunity to talk to him for the next 70 days? Hard to say, but as Pat mentioned, certainly you gave up a lot to get these rights. Granted, it's out there in the future. You don't really know who that person could turn out to be, but they got what they needed in this window. And here now the ball is in Hamilton's court. They better come up with something that makes Bo Levi Mitchell, who was contemplating a TV career at the same time, he has to look at this and say, okay, that's worth it for me to either uproot my family or leave them in Calgary and I'll be employed in Hamilton. I would be very surprised if they do manage to get his signature on a contract prior to free agency opening, but they can certainly lead the way with what they put on the table for him. Bo Levi Mitchell appeared on the Barnburner podcast in Calgary earlier this week, and he raised some really interesting points about free agency. We know the CFL rosters turn over so much year to year, as well as some of the coaching staff. So Bo Levi Mitchell really talked about um, wanting to find out what the offers are. He wants to find out where the coaches are going to end up. He wants to find out where other players fit in here as well. So it could be a long stretch into free agency before we actually see him sign and it's up to that Hamilton Tiger Cats organization to prove to him that they want to make another successful run at a Grey Cup and that he is an important piece but not the only piece and that he feels comfortable going into that setting. The Tiger Cats I think to their benefit have a coach that is going to be there that is well known and well liked and highly respected. That has to bode well for them right off the top. The dollar value is going to be the critical mass, I think, if you want Bo not to look at any other offers prior to his opportunity to become a free agent. If he says, okay, Hamilton, you've you've anteed up. I'm good with that. You guys have been to two Grey Cups in an East semifinal. I think we are on the right track. We need a receiver, maybe somebody like uh, Brian Burnham. Could they ever lure him out of British Columbia? He is going to be an FA as well. Potentially, if he does go that route, then Burnham could be another opportunity. You just don't know until every sort of piece falls together. And even at that, 
as much as Mitchell can say, I want to know where the coaches are going, where the, some of the players are going, you don't know until it finally happens in February. Interesting, Don, that you say Orlando Steinauer is firmly entrenched as the man going forward because at the half point in the season, I don't think we would have said that. We would have said he's probably the coach most likely under the gun at that point in time, outside of Montreal, I suppose, right? Um, having said that, I think you also have to give kudos to Calgary's general manager. He's able to take a, a quarterback that is known to be leaving, has made it clear he's not coming back, and get some asset in return for someone who's not going to resign with him again. It's going to be very fascinating to see how this plays out. But in the interim, at least, Hamilton has exclusivity, and that's all they really wanted. Steinhauer himself even admitted that we had to give up something to get it, and now we've got it, now we have to work with it. And this is just the first piece of the quarterback puzzle that we're likely to see in this offseason as well. We know Cody Fajardo and the Saskatchewan Rough Riders aren't necessarily on the best terms right now. As, as Pat mentioned, where does this leave Dane Evans? Nathan Rourke is going to get some looks south of the border here. If he doesn't land on an NFL roster and comes back to BC, where does that leave Vernon Adams Jr.? The health of Jeremiah Mazzoli in Ottawa always comes into question. Trevor Harris in Montreal is another year older and another year without a championship. There are a lot of pieces. The only one that is really locked up at this point, in, in my mind, is Zach Kolaris assigned a three-year extension with the Blue Bombers. It doesn't appear to be going anywhere. And McLeod Bethel-Thompson, depending on what happens here this coming week, may see a bit more of a future in Toronto, but will, that remains to be seen as well. There are a lot of quarterbacks that may have played their last game or about to play their last game. Trevor Harris, McLeod Bethel-Thompson are two that are leading candidates. Does Jeremiah Mazzoli ever step back onto the field in Ottawa? There's so many questions, and we haven't even got to the Grey Cup game. So <laughs> we're going to have a lot to talk about post-Grey Cup. Another thing that I want to talk to is booth replay. And we saw it in huge evidence in the Western semifinal. BC's first drive goes nowhere. Stefan Flintoff punts. The punt is blocked. The Blue Bombers recover the ball deep in BC territory. But automatically, because there was a turnover on the play, the booth gets involved to assess it to make sure that it was a turnover. And then... Under definitions provided by the CFL, the booth also has the right to look at all other aspects of the play that may have an impact. And in this case, Tanner Gaskell Cadwallader hit the plant leg of Flintoff as he was punting. The crowd in Winnipeg went nuts when the 15-yard penalty was assessed for roughing the kicker against the Blue Bombers, but it was completely the right call. And that's something that I think the CFL has better than the NFL. And I'll just give you a for instance. In the Monday night game that followed, Washington linebacker Jamin Davis tackles Philadelphia's Dallas Goddard. He's taking him down via the face mask and turning his head. As Goddard goes down, he fumbles the football, and it's Davis that recovers the fumble. Now in the NFL, automatic review on a turnover, but no possibility to overturn based on the 15-yard face mask. 
In that case, Washington kept the ball. There's nothing they could do. And it's one of the, I think, failings that they have in that system that the CFL has right. You shouldn't gain something by penalty. I agree with you on that. I believe if there is a, a review, all aspects of the play need to be reviewable. The roughing the, the kicker in this situation with Flintoft is interesting because it's a rule change that came into effect only within the last few years. In the 2019 season, I believe, about not being able to contact the plant foot. It used to be as long as you made contact with the ball first, the, the kicker himself is pretty much fair game. And in the call for increased player safety, protecting that vulnerable plant foot for the kickers is a good rule to put in place. It created some confusion because a lot of CFL fans are used to the old way and saw a clear punt block, but it was the right call. They they did have it in place to protect the kicker. And, and this is a prime example because Flintoff could have been pretty severely injured. There was two blue bombers converging on that punt block, a lot of pieces in motion there. And the, the right call was made in this situation. It didn't help the blue bombers and certainly upset some of the fans at, at investors group field. But at the end of the day, they got it right. The CFL does deserve credit for decisions like this. They, they, as you allude to Heath, they, they're looking after player safety and the review was pivotal in the game. That's a point where if Winnipeg has the ball that close to the end zone, they're most likely to put points on the board and the game changes almost immediately. So I'm glad that the right call was made. I'm glad the CFL has the foresight to say the whole play is reviewable because it was a crucial point in the game and they got it right. So kudos to them. It's not often people will say the CFL is doing things better than the NFL. We often hear people call the CFL down, but we do need to recognize when they get it right. There's another point in this game that was interesting with with penalties as well. And it was one where the BC Lions defense was offside and had a pass rush in on Zach Kolaris. He was about to be sacked and threw the ball away. And he ended up being flagged for intentional grounding. Now, my question is, if the offside led to that quarterback pressure, how can you penalize the quarterback for intentional grounding? The the offside was the initial penalty. Had he hung on to the ball and been sacked for a loss, it would have just been a, a offside penalty against BC and they moved the ball forward. Now, Claris had an opportunity in that play. He does play it out. He thinks he's got a freebie and he's going to try to throw it somewhere and, and gain something from it. But at the moment that he starts to realize this isn't going to work, all he has to do is get the ball across the line of scrimmage, and he didn't even come close. Now, what they did say, which was interesting, was by rule, the penalties wash out and it's first and 10 over again. That is exceptionally rare in the CFL where two penalties literally are washing out. They may because of distance, but rarely because of consequence. And that was interesting for me to hear that interpretation. That is fair. And that reaches a little bit to your point. If BC's offside and Claris gets a grounding call, well, the league says basically we'll play it over. Which is fair, but I do think there there is a, a bit of a which comes first chicken or the egg type of situation here, right? Um, Heath, I do believe that maybe it should have gone the other way where there's five yards moving forward and you've got a repeat of first and five as 
opposed to 10. So that that's something maybe the CFL can look at. And, and again, where the CFL gets it right and the NFL refuses to is the review of the rules are open to that. So situations throughout the year, whether it's playoffs or otherwise, are going to be reviewed and, and the CFL and its governors as well as the referees are going to take a look and say what's best for our league. That's one I hope that they do take a look at and make some decisions. It may be that they continue to do what they've done because as you said, Don, at the end of the day, it's like running the play again. But one came before the other and, and the second one seems to be directly attributable to the offside on the defensive pressure. I'm not totally agreeing with you on that. If it was egregious enough and the defender had crossed into the Winnipeg plane of the line of scrimmage, they would have blown it dead immediately, but they did not. So he only got a partial advantage. And as a result, they allowed the play to run through Winnipeg, Zach Kolaris seizing the moment, thinking that he can gain something from this because there's nothing to lose. And then when he gets caught out, he flips the ball away. Well, that's on him, not on the rule book. Just before we get to the games themselves, the CFL has announced the All-Stars from the East and the West. No surprise who the quarterback would be, Zach Kolaris of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. One that kind of jumps out to me is Janarian Grant gets the nod as the special teams player and not Mario Alford from the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. I believe the the season that Alford had, not to take away from what Janarian Grant has done because he's an, an energetic and exciting returner as well. But I think Alford did enough to warrant the the nod from the West for sure. And a little surprising even in the overall all-star team that Janarian Grant gets the nod over Chandler Worthy of the Montreal Alouettes as well. And one aspect that we have to remember, though, in this is that there is an element of a fan vote attached to it. So it's not strictly media. And as such, you're going to see a little bit different results. Calgary getting so many, I guess, was a bit of a surprise. Eight. But beyond that, Eugene Lewis from the Alouettes is receiver. Dominique Rimes from the Lions is receiver. Tim White Curly Gittens Jr., you, they're all there because of merit. You go up and down the line. I, mean, I don't think there's any real problem with anybody that was chosen. It's just, yeah, sometimes it is funny how somebody that's up for another award may not make it on this list. That, that definitely was the big takeaway for me too. You know, it, it, the league nominates an individual as an outstanding player, and yet they're not even on the all-star team. It seems kind of funny. And I think that goes down to the fact that as we hear some of the players on Twitter talk about this, it, it tends to be a popularity and name recognition game when fans vote. And I'm not sure that that is the way that the All-Stars should be picked, to be honest. I think it needs to recognize the play in that season as opposed to the recognizability of the name and the past play that fans tend to vote on as opposed to people who truly understand the game. Darnell Sankey has made it abundantly clear that he believes he should have been on this all-star team. He had a phenomenal season, and I don't want to take away anything from him. I think he is well-deserved. But you look at the two linebackers that also made this squad, and you've got Cam Judge of the Calgary Stampeders and Winton McManus of the Toronto Argonauts. And can you really say that neither of them is worthy of an all-star nod? I I think they are both well-deserved as well. Unfortunately, 
depending on the depth of a position, a great season doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get the nod. A real fine line on receivers as well. I think Curly Gittens Jr. probably narrowly beat out Nick Dembski of the Blue Bombers for a nod as a receiver. You can look at Gittens led a little bit in yardage, but Dembski had the touchdowns and the catches that mattered in that regard. So at the end of the day, how do you how do you decide? It's almost a, a heads or tails situation. The fun part about the CFL is that when the All-Stars are named, there's always going to be a bit of a debate as to who is truly deserving of that position and who kind of got missed because they, they had that. And that's kind of what makes the league fun as well. Um, I would like to see the fan vote go personally because I do think that we might have better representation at least in the East and West choice of All-Stars. I think the CFO got it right in terms of getting the people that they have here. I don't think outside of Janarian Grant, there's anyone that I can argue shouldn't be here. Second down. Two games in the Canadian Football League last weekend, the Eastern and Western Finals. We'll start out East in Toronto, where a very good crowd watched the Toronto Argonauts prevail 34-27 over the Montreal Alouettes in what was a barn burner of a game. The two teams went after each other. Toronto got up to an early lead. The Alouettes fought back, and it really wasn't decided until the last couple of minutes. Toronto, McLeod, Bethel Thompson, 19-27 of 27 for 299 yards and two touchdowns. Chad Kelly comes in. Throws a touchdown pass for the Argonauts. Trevor Harris goes all the way for Montreal, 25 of 30, 362, one touchdown at quarterback. Very impressive displays by both quarterbacks. The difference is that Toronto was able to capitalize with those touchdowns, as you alluded to. If Chad Kelly's not in there, Bethel Thompson almost has 300 yards, could have had three touchdown passes, but really Chad Kelly going in caught them by surprise. He makes a fantastic pass and that changes the game right there in the fact that you've got a touchdown that that's hard to respond to on third and short when you have a touchdown that goes all the way down the field it takes the sails out of the other team and we've seen that in several occasions this year as well it's nice to see some offensive coordinators mixing things up a little bit on a third and short and not be afraid to take that shot field position comes into play a little bit you don't want to be deep in your own end, but it was a, a 46-yard touchdown pass, so enough field position that even if they turn the ball over, Montreal's still starting on their side of the midfield stripe, and anything can happen. It looked like Toronto had this game in hand. As Don mentioned, they got off to an early lead, jumped out, and started to pile up the points, but no quit in that Montreal team, and they really clawed back and made a game of it. A thousand yards of offense in this football game, and the score reflects that. The one bane that the Alouettes had all season, and one thing that their head coach, Danny Machocha, had said that he wanted to clean up, was penalties. And yet, it was a face mask right at the end of the game, clinched it for the Toronto Argonauts. Very unfortunate. I don't think it was an intentional face mask by any means. It was a an effort to stop. We knew clock management dictates that Toronto is going to run the ball. Andrew Harris had the ball in his hands and it was a, a last ditch effort to try to bring him down. that got the hand in the face and essentially ended the game. Michael Moore, who rarely had had a penalty call against him 
unfortunately, was the guy that got his hand up into the grill. The Argonauts, as a result, killed the last four minutes of the game with the ball in their possession. When you look at their quarterback efficiency of rounding off to 133 and 149, one of the criticisms of the CFL this year has been that the quarterback play has not been up to standard. And this game highlighted very efficient passing games with, I thought, two quarterbacks who played outstanding in this game. To me, this is what the CFL needs because a lot of the criticism I hear from friends is that the quarterback play has been substandard, that they're not doing as well. And when we see teams that come out and have a great game, when it matters, that's what you want to happen in the playoffs. They put on a show. Kudos to both teams because... They went after it. This was not a wait-and-see attitude. This was, I'm going to take this game if I can get it right now. And both sides went hard to try to get the win and left nothing on the field. One play that stands out to me is the 31-yard touchdown pass to Curly Gittens Jr. He's not somebody that you generally see stretch the field a lot. He's a great hands receiver, a great target on second down. He knows where the sideline is and sure hands. So it was a, a great call by Toronto to send him on a go route into the end zone and a, a great pass by McLeod Bethel-Thompson uh, and uh, resulting in a touchdown. Recognition too by Thompson to know that the safety wasn't going to be available on the play and he looked him off to make sure. We don't often give McLeod Bethel-Thompson his plaudits for what he does on the field but on that play there he checks the safety out of the picture Gittins Jr. then is open over the middle. Another thing in this game we've talked about Gittins Jr. being an all-star and playing very well but on the other side we see another emerging Canadian in Tyson Philpott who had an outstanding game here. Eight receptions on eight targets for 127 yards. What a game. He is going to be a talent, to, and, and he's going to be a player that teams are going to have to reckon with in the future. The late game on Sunday saw the British Columbia Lions in Winnipeg to take on the Blue Bombers. Again, another huge crowd in Winnipeg to watch this one as the hometown team prevailed for the third straight time in the Western Final, this time over BC 28-20. to Not as high an output in terms of scoring nor in offense, but a very entertaining game. Nathan Rourke went all the way at quarterback for British Columbia. 20-37 for 300 yards. Definitely had a slow start. One TD, two interceptions. Zach Kolaris, 14-20 of 20 for 178 yards. A touchdown and interception. That seems to be his stat line in the last half of the season. Drew Brown, who may be significant this Sunday. One of one for 12 yards. Dakota Prukop also out there with one completion for 10 yards. Rourke was... Definitely struggling in the first half of this football game. He seemed to be frustrated and almost, as I would describe it, inside his own head. He wasn't, he was just getting too consumed by what was going wrong and not seeing what he could do to change things. If you look at the games this season where Nathan Rourke had a subpar performance, it would be the the regular season game against Winnipeg early in the season when they were a couple of undefeated teams going head to head and this game as well. So that Winnipeg defense seems to have his number for the time being. They didn't get to him a lot. There was only one or two sacks by that Winnipeg defense. But as I've mentioned before, having the wingspan of 
Willie Jefferson and Jackson Jeffcoat on the ends on that defensive line wreak some havoc. We saw a, a forced fumble, at least three knockdowns by Willie Jefferson as well. So when those guys come to play, the tackles and the sacks might not necessarily be there, but the, the disruption certainly is. Hats off to Richie Hall as well. Jamming the receivers on the line and taking away that quick read of Nathan Rourke's seemed to work. And there were times where they were man-to-man, but there were times also with a jam on the line and then flipping people back into zones made it difficult for Nathan Rourke. This is the one game where I think he truly looked like a rookie, uh, particularly early in the game where he just seemed to struggle reading what was happening. Keon Hatcher was his big target, seven receptions for 133 yards. Nick Dembski helped set up the first touchdown of the game on the opening drive for Winnipeg, and he had a decent day, five catches for 74 yards, leading the Blue Bombers. The Blue Bombers' offense won this game on the ground. The offensive line did a great job, and 173 yards rushing overall for the Bombers, 130 yards by Brady Oliveira, and a scoring drive late in the game consisted of eight running plays as they pounded their way down the field and into the end zone. The footing in Winnipeg didn't look great. There was definitely some frost and snow on the field causing some traction issues. And Winnipeg's offensive line and running backs took advantage of that. Winnipeg's defense also shut down the running game of British Columbia. James Butler, six carries for four yards. We certainly expected more out of BC, but they just didn't seem to be able to have an answer for the defense, as you alluded to, Heath. And and BC's offense, while it did get going later, it just didn't have enough. Kept it close, which was, you know, hats off. Winnipeg's a tough team, and heading into the Great Cup, they're undoubtedly the favorites because of how well they do play. Uh, but BC, for me, one of the things that I took in this game was the opportunity to watch Nathan Rourke. Even though he struggled, he still came up with 300 yards, and he is a talent that that if he signs in the NFL, we're going to miss watching him. He's done the tour in the States. A lot of teams have seen him once. This game is probably not the one that you want to take and show with your Vitae. This is more likely a game that he would like to wash away. But again, it's a learning curve. And we saw the emotion for him at the end of the game. I've always believed that if it doesn't hurt, it didn't matter. And when you saw Nathan Rourke in tears, it hurt because it mattered. The fact that he remained on the field to watch the the trophy presentation to the Blue Bombers shows how much it means to him as well. He could have easily been back in the locker room with his head down in his stall at this point. He went out there... He got the taste of playoff football. He got to see what it takes to win. And he watched the Winnipeg Blue Bombers celebrate that win. He's definitely going to learn from this. And a great mentor to him has to be Brian Burnham, who was consoling him on the sideline as well. We don't know what the future has in store for Brian Burnham either. There's been a little bit of talk about maybe stepping away and and retiring if this was the end for him. He was out there to comfort his quarterback, and that shows a lot of camaraderie and a lot of respect amongst those two. I wonder if CFL teams would have taken a look at him without being branded as a national player. The fact that he's a national, he had an opportunity to play, he got to show what he's capable of, and it's given him the opportunity to potentially go down to the NFL. Well, let's remember, he wasn't the first pick overall the year he came out in Canada. This also is a testament to his work ethic, his drive, his determination, and his love of the game. You don't find that in many, many people. And Nathan Rourke is a special person. 
it would be a shame if the CFL didn't have him in 2023. I would put his odds of being in the States with a team maybe at 30%, but even 30% is quite a significant number. Third down. Grey Cup 109 in Regina on Sunday. It's going to be the Toronto Argonauts and the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. As has been mentioned in the media, this is the first time since 1950 that the two teams have met. Buddy Tingsley, of course, very famously had his face down in the slop pit that was Varsity Stadium at the time. Had to be helped over. It's one of the enduring video pieces that comes from that game. Toronto won that game 13-0. Toronto is on a six-game Grey Cup winning streak. Last time they lost was to Edmonton in the mid-80s. Winnipeg, of course, is on a two-game winning streak, looking to make it three in a row. A lot of it is going to depend on what happens with Zach Kolaris and the most watched ankle in Canada at the moment. We saw him go down injured in the fourth quarter of that Western final. He did not come. He tried to come back out onto the field for the last drive. Either Drew Brown outraced him to the huddle, or he was not quite able to go and return to the sideline. He says he's ready to go. Coach Mike O'Shea says he's ready to go. We know there's a lot of gamesmanship that goes into Grey Cup week as well. So I don't think we'll truly know the extent of the injury until we see him hit the field on Sunday. I believe 100% he is going to start. Whether he is successful and continues throughout the game remains to be seen. Winnipeg five-point favorites heading into Regina. I think they deserve to be five-point favorites. Winnipeg is the class of the CFL. They, with Caleros healthy, I don't think there'd be any question that people would go with Winnipeg to win. With Caleros, it adds a bit of a mystery as to what will happen because the game potentially changes. Even if he is able to play and his mobility is limited, he uses his mobility so well to escape pressure and to move and make things happen that that will have an impact on Winnipeg's offense. No Eastern team has won in the West since 2010. That was Montreal defeating Saskatchewan in Edmonton. No Eastern team has won the Grey Cup in Regina as well. One thing, regardless of the mobility of Zach Kolaris that's going to come into play, is it will be a cold weather game. Not ridiculously cold. We're looking at minus 3 to minus 10 throughout the day. Advantage to Winnipeg in the running game in this one as well. We saw how important that was in that Western final. And Buck Pierce, as offensive coordinator, does a really good job of mixing up that running game. Brady Oliveira is the number one running back, absolutely 100%. But it's not unusual for them to mix in somebody like Rashid Bailey on an end-around play. Nick Dembski can grab the ball and run up the middle, or he can sweep to the outside as well. And then when you've got a quarterback like Dakota Prukup that that comes in on short yardage plays, he adds a wrinkle as well. He can throw the ball, but we've also seen him take a a third in inches and stretch it into a seven or eight yard gain. Ja'Garrett Davis, of course, is playing in his sixth consecutive Grey Cup game, three different clubs. Player with the record of seven in a row, Hank Olisic. Of course, Mike O'Shea is looking for his third straight win. The last coach to do that was Don Matthews, 95 through 97. Ultimately, if Winnipeg is going to win this game, it's going to really depend on how healthy Kolaris is. It's not the same situation with Drew Brown 
as it was with Ryan Dinwiddie in 2007 versus Saskatchewan in Toronto, where the Blue Bombers went from a starting quarterback that got them there and suddenly went to somebody that had literally no experience. Drew Brown has started this year for the Blue Bombers, has given BC everything they could handle in BC place. He's also come in against Ottawa, led Winnipeg to a win in that game. He has the confidence. I think he has the enough game experience that this won't be too big for him. He's ready for the challenge. And given that at least midweek, Zach Kolaris is not practicing, who knows? He may be the quarterback of note for the Blue Bombers. Let's go back to previous years when the Blue Bombers are in big games. Sometimes Zach Kolaris has come out and he hasn't protected the ball very well. And he's turned it over enough. But the team around him is really what makes a difference. Because when it matters... They can take that ball and march down the field. If this is a close game, I would absolutely give a nod to Winnipeg in being able to close it out because we've seen them do that consistently in the past three years where they have need the drive. And as you say, Buck Pierce makes the right calls. They often grind it out on the ground. And despite the turnovers, the team's able to keep them in the game and take it away when it matters. I still think even with Drew Brown in, that can happen here. He needs to manage the game. He needs to be the person to distribute the ball, but they're not relying on their quarterback, whether it's Caleros or Brown, to make all of the plays to be successful. In their history, in Grey Cups, the Blue Bombers have never defeated the Argonauts. They are 0-6. Of note, all of those games predate the CFL itself. So we're going way, way back into the annals of CFL history for that. If you want to talk about streaks, though, Mike O'Shea has never been on the losing side of a Grey Cup game as a player or a coach in his career. Andrew Harris is heading for his third straight, fourth overall. Brandon Banks looking for his first win as a player. There's a lot of subplots. The running game of Toronto is going to be really interesting to watch in this one as well. Andrew Harris was injured for a large part of the season and came back in that East final and really split the duty with A.J. Ouellette. I had kind of anticipated a one-two punch at running back for Toronto in that in that game, and that's exactly what we saw. Neither one of them got a lot of carries. They were both around eight or nine touches. So we'll have to see how mobile Andrew Harris is, how much he fought to get back into the game. And we know this is going to be an important one. He does feel slighted by the Blue Bombers in what happened at the end of last season in free agency. So he's got something to prove, but is he going to be enough of a factor for the Argonauts? Toronto's rushing provided 80 yards in that East final against Montreal. AJ Ouellette has really started to find himself in that offense, and that could be a big factor. The Argonauts I don't want to take them lightly. They won the East. They were the best team in the East. They are here because they belong here. Winnipeg, yes, had the best record of 15-3. and three. The two teams only met once this season. Winnipeg won that game. But the Argonauts that were playing in August are a vastly different team than the Argonauts that are playing in November. To me, the keys for success for Toronto are they're going to need to have another outstanding show by their defense, and they have to be able to match up with Winnipeg. It's not that they can't do that. I think they certainly could, and if their defense comes to play and can shut down particularly the run of Winnipeg, 
that can keep them in this game and give them the chance to move ahead. Like the quarterbacks with Winnipeg, I think if we have Bethel Thompson play an average game and Toronto can get their run game going in the cold temperatures, we know Olette can put a lot of damage there. When you add Andrew Harris as well, and we've seen what he does in playoffs. He comes to play as long as the line can open holes for them. This could be a very interesting game, and it could be very close. We talk about five points being the difference. It, it could be much closer than that if this comes down to a game of defense against defense and truly running game against running game. Special teams are likely to be a factor in this one as well. And Kicking, I would have to give the edge to Boris Beattie and the Toronto Argonauts. But the return game, Janarian Grant has the ability to turn this game around. We saw early in the game against BC, he fumbled a kick that led to a Lions touchdown. He redeemed himself later on in the game with a spectacular punt return touchdown. He's the type of player that if he gets that opportunity and you give him an inch, he's going to get around the edge and make life very difficult. Two indicators of success. Pat alluded to it very early. Turnovers are going to be massive in this game. The second thing is quarterback sacks. One time in 59 sacks in the last 10 years has a team gone on to score a touchdown. So give up a sack and yet you still manage to recoup and go down in the field and score. One time. So that's going to be a huge factor overall. The other thing, and this could be getting into superstition, which is the same superstition about not touching the conference trophy because the only one that matters is the Grey Cup. I've never quite understood that. It's a stepping stone. Opening kickoffs. The team that has received the opening kickoff has not won the Grey Cup since 2012. And in that game, Toronto got the ball, won the game, but on their opening play, threw an interception. We alluded to it earlier. There are all kinds of stories in this great cup. I love the week leading up to the game. So much information comes out. We see players from the past arriving at the game. We understand the history of the game. And I can't wait to get to Regina and see this great cup. I know we're all going. We're going to be on the field. We certainly know who he's going to be cheering for. But I think as CFL fans, we all want to see a fantastic game. And this is something I've heard about the Argonauts all season. They are either going to lose big or win close. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again the Third Down Gamble podcast. Audio worth watching. Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by Canadian Football League player and game statistics for analytics, game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.